0: I'm Ben Horton.
1: And I'm Agnes Brimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Wonderful to be here on the muggiest day of the year, I have to say. I don't know, is muggy, is that a term that translates? Is that some kind of weird English idiom?
1: Yeah, no, I don't please. know. Sorry, hello, everybody. As well, I'm here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, because it's sort of heavy atmosphere. Is that right? Just yeah. heat being held in the air. It's very grim. humid. Very humid. I've got mosquitoes or midges near me. Have you? Have you? Uh, yes, no. I know London.
0: But who did you speak to this week, Ben? This week, I've got a really interesting interview with Bruno Massage. Bruno is. A really interesting thinker. He used to be a minister in the Portuguese government Mm -hmm. and now is part of many think tanks and, and university departments thinking about global affairs broadly defined. And his new book is called History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America. And it's a really provocative look at how American society has developed over time and how it has diverged from how Europeans think about society and politics and the implications for that for politics and foreign affairs more broadly. So, yeah, we had a chat about about that and particularly with a view to how President Trump plays into this kind of dynamic and what the implications might be if the US continues to go it alone in that sense. So very interesting chat.
1: Feels like quite a broad-ranging, covering a lot of ground there.
0: <laughs> um, but you also had an incredibly interesting interview this evening, Agnes.
1: I did. It's with sadness that we learned of the death of an ex-colleague of ours last week, Rosemary Hollis, who was the head of the Chatham House's Middle East programme between 1995 and 2008. Very well respected in her field and very much treasured by many of our ex-colleagues. So I was lucky enough to speak to Ian Black, who was The Guardian's Middle East editor for many years he's now a visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Centre LSE and he knew Rosemary and wrote a very well-rounded and interesting obituary on Sunday for her so we had a short chat about Rosemary's life and career I hope you enjoy the discussion even if you even if you haven't heard of her or didn't know her yourself so should we have a listen
0: yeah let's have a listen Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Bruno Massaich. Bruno is a non-resident senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, a senior advisor at Flink Global and a senior fellow at Renmin University of China. And he was formerly Portugal's Europe minister between 2013 and 2015. A very long and impressive CV. His latest book, which came out earlier this year, is titled History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America. And it's published by Hearst out now. Bruno, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I just wondered if we could begin unpicking the first sentence in your book, which says in the preface, we are unlearning old truths, a prelude to learning new ones. First off, what are we unlearning?
2: Well, I think the current moment is a good illustration of what I say in the book. We look to America, but not only to America, and suddenly it seems like a world upside down where Mm. our customary uh, framework doesn't work anymore, where we have to look for a new framework to interpret it, what I argue in the book is that we shouldn't sort of rush to the conclusion that the old world is collapsing, and that's the only alternative. Mm -hmm. Because usually what happens, and we have always that expectation, perhaps that hope, is that something is in fact collapsing, but something new is being built. I applied the idea of creative destruction to history and culture and politics, not just to the economy as Schumpeter did. Mm. And so I look to the United States uh, as an example of that. I see a society that is still turned towards the future, I see the conflict, uh, which is getting deeper, as precisely a conflict about the shape that the future will take. I don't see a society that is exhausted and that is ready to collapse. I see one of those moments, perhaps actually a more significant moment than Reconstruction in the 19th century or the Great Depression in the 20th century, a moment of radical transformation in the United States,
0: which, of course, interests and concerns us all. I suppose it's early days, but what do you think that transformation is looking like? What specifics do you think are changing? What are being rethought? I think
2: the main thing,
0: and you know, I wonder if the
2: listeners would agree with me looking at what is happening these uh, past few weeks in the United States, the main thing seems to me to be a a separation between the new America and its original Western liberal European uh, legacy, tradition, culture. Mm -hmm. Today, the differences the gulf between Europe and the United States are much deeper than anyone thought they could be, or I think much deeper than they've ever been in the past. We have to remember, this is somehow obvious, but we don't always think about it in these terms. The United States started as a European colony. All throughout the 19th century, it was effectively a European colony, economically and culturally. And then in the 20th century, we see a process that could be called, it may sound odd, but a process of decolonization. And what we have today is, I think, the conclusion of that process. So America is turning away from this legacy. It's perhaps particularly traumatic to Europeans, but also to people in the U.S. that are still part of this legacy culture. But today the United States is moving in a different direction. And so what we think as the foundational values of European civilization, the Enlightenment, science, a certain understanding of freedom, as non-interference, limits on the individual, the wishes of the individual in the name of, of the collective. All these ideas today seem particularly in crisis in the United States, and uh, we see that with the response to the pandemic. I think it was the country. I can think of another example in the world that really had a very hard time, if it managed at all, to face, let us say, the facts or reality. A pandemic is a purely physical phenomenon. You know, scientists still argue whether a virus is a form of life or, or, or not a form of life, a purely physical phenomenon operating through a very rudimentary process of multiplication. So there's nothing cultural about it. There's nothing political about it. There's nothing literary about it, fictional about it. And a society in a culture uh, like America is today does not know how to deal with something like this. It's a society that is based on interpretation, on fiction, on fantasy, on the imagination. And so we saw that clash during the pandemic and uh, how, in fact, I mean, the United States sort of tried for a few days to deal with the pandemic the same way that we have in Europe and then concluded that it could not do it. Immediately, it was transported into a narrative of human conflict, human drama, about Trump's antics. But now also we see on the left how the left also suddenly replaced the pandemic with the fight for social justice without giving it a single thought. So if Trump was criticized back in February for ignoring the pandemic, we can see, I think, and it's my argument in the book, that this is not really about Trump. This is about deep structures in American society, American culture,
0: and American politics. I suppose my first question really is, I mean, you sort of present it as something that's almost inevitable, that these ideas, that these sort of underpinnings, you know, as you were saying, the Enlightenment, science, rationality, a certain conception of liberty, that yeah. these things are going to fall away. But couldn't you argue that actually the deep division in US society is precisely because those things are not going away and that, that there is a large group of people who still fundamentally believe in those things and they're not going away without a fight in that sense?
1: Well, I don't
2: suggest for a moment that what is happening in America is that these European values are going away because they are being replaced by, let us say, an authoritarian regime or a theocratic regime. That's not what's happening in America. They are being replaced by something new. So we're not, I think, regressing to past values. I think that's how many times events in America are interpreted, that America is regressing to a pre-modern society based on religion, or to an authoritarian model, perhaps something going back to the past European history in the 30s or some other time. I don't think that's happening. What's happening is really the creation of new values. They have a lot, I argue, in the book, and I think events in, in the last few weeks show this. They have a lot to do with technology, and they have a lot to do with creativity, with the idea of fantasy, with the idea of creating imaginary worlds, with the idea of simulation, What we see in America today is a certain love of fantasy life and an attempt actually to turn it into something more important than real life. Americans, it seems to me, are not happy with the understanding, the European understanding of freedom, which really is about eliminating sources of delusion or deception. The European Enlightenment was always about eliminating sources of deception. Could be religion, could be social myths, collective myths of different kinds. Freedom in America today, in particular, is not about this. Is in fact about creating an imaginary life. Is about creating new forms of fantasy. I was just watching a few videos from the campaign that is now starting for Congress, And you see many congressmen and congresswomen really posting ads that are small uh, Netflix series about guns, about violence, about religion. I say in the book that Americans, in a way look at uh, ideas like nation, ideas like money and wealth, ideas like religion. And whereas Europeans would be very concerned about arguing and showing that there is uh, something fictional about these ideas and so that they should not be embraced very deeply, Mm. that they are not reality, Americans in a way embrace them all more deeply when they understand that there is something fictional about it. So some of the contemporary American myths, uh, guns, uh, religion, but also the myth of the billionaire, the extravagant billionaire, I think are distinctively American. And and they are very difficult to pursue in Europe because we're still part of that Enlightenment tradition. So even to be a billionaire in Europe is difficult. And we do have billionaires, but barely know who they are. They keep quiet. And in America, there's a different understanding of all these motivating forces of human life. They are embraced as what gives meaning to life. And that creates, of course, room for conflict Mm. in a way that is not present in, in European life today. One can look across the Atlantic and be happy that that we are in Europe and not subject to this turmoil that we see in America today. Uh, On the other hand, one could argue that American life today has a certain depth
0: that is lacking here. The events of recent weeks are really making clear that actually the US is really not just about dealing with an inheritance from European culture, but that it's also about working out how to relate when you have all sorts of different geographical inheritances all coming together in one place and, and how that politically can function and socially can function. I just wondered if you had a view on how your thesis plays out in the context of race relations. Right. So I was cautious in the book not to talk too
2: much about race. Um, mm. a hot topic. I will return to it in the future. There are two uh, moments in the book where where I do discuss it. Uh, First, when one is thinking about relations between America and Europe, it is important to realize that although at the beginning American society is essentially created out of European immigrants and colonizers, that very quickly changes. I mention in the book how it's really quite possible to think about four or five different waves that compose the American people, You have the Native Americans who do have a a certain importance, as I discuss in the book, although their culture was destroyed and it's not really present in American society today. Then you have, of course, African Americans whose impact on American culture, one can safely say, was deeper than most interpretations allow for. Yet, I think that will tend to change, but one does have to go back to the 19th century and see how deep it was. Mm. And then uh, in the 20th century, you have immigrants really coming from all over the world, a lot from Latin America, a lot from Asia. You have the Russian immigration, Jewish immigration, um, Mm. Chinese, Japanese. All this creates an ethnos, a people that is in a way, already self-consciously defines itself uh, as against the European white tradition. And this is important, I think, is very much connected to political correctness in the United States. There is always, and it's been particularly accelerating in the last few decades, a political project to try to look at American society and try to move it in a direction that is less connected to its European origins, uh, which are regarded as oppressive. And this then takes a form in literary studies where one looks for different influences in cultural studies and so on. All this is very important. And it would be interesting to actually, and I try a little bit in the book, to actually interpret it in terms of this perennial fight between American Europe and America's attempt to free itself from European culture, which then takes a very high-principled and moral form once Americans are trying to incorporate different races and different immigrant waves into its dominant culture. This is important, I think. And then uh, on the question of race, difficult as the topic is, I think it is and particularly conflictual. Uh, So one always has to keep in mind that it's difficult to have a consensus about the race question. Mm -hmm. But one thing where I think we can agree is that it is regarded differently in the United States and in Europe. The European attempt to deal with the race problem, which I don't think has been very successful, and we will see that in coming decades, Uh, has been to deny the existence of race. Uh, Again, the Enlightenment tradition is, this is both a quality and a problem with the Enlightenment, that it gets rid of a lot of things. By the end, it doesn't have a lot left. uh, But gets rid of a lot of things as being, uh, again, as I said before, delusions. And race is also regarded as not based on scientific fact or not based on social individual reality. And so something one should get rid of, as we got rid of religion and other illusions. This is, I think, the the European approach. Then it fails because it's never very clear how one does get rid of it when it seems to be so present in our daily lives. Now, Americans, I don't think, try to do this. Uh, Americans are not trying to get rid of race. They are trying to reinvent it in new forms. They are, in a way, obsessed about race. And we see that today. They are trying to create new narratives, new images, new stories around race, but certainly not eliminating them.
0: Obviously. People have long looked to the US as a source of global leadership, as a country that could bring other countries together in pursuit of common goals. But it feels to me, at least you may disagree, it feels to me that the politics that you describe and the process that they're undergoing is only likely to make the US more inward looking, more isolationist. So do you think that's going to leave a vacuum in the international order that we hear so much about? Is that why people are so concerned when we hear endless media interviews and, and read endless off eds saying the liberal world order is over or it's in crisis? Is it really that the process America is going through is, is leading it to vacate the stage globally?
2: I think there's a transformation, but I wouldn't think it's in the direction of isolationism. It is in the direction of a multipolar world. The days of American hegemony and the days where people actually believed, strange to think about that now, but actually believed that the whole world was on the way of becoming like America. It seems more likely now that America is becoming like the rest of the world than that the rest of the world is becoming like America. Now, I don't think America is going to lose its interest in the world. I actually hope, and that's how I finished the book. I actually hope that there's this American rebirth that I talk about can also take the form of a new interest in the rest of the world. One reason I'm not so negative about American today is that actually I'm quite negative about the American of the last 30 years. If you're very happy with, the, with that America, then you'll be worried today. But I'm not, and I was not. I think the neoconservative movement was uh, quite poisonous, really closed American society to the world, created these uh, juvenile fantasies. Uh, I interpret American foreign policy in the last 30 years as essentially a kind of a children's tale where the hero goes out into the world and performs a heroic deed and then returns home covered in glory. And, you know, you look at the evidence of how the decisions behind the Iraq war were taken, and it was really this. It wasn't more sophisticated than this. It was quite juvenile. And so there America lived in a fantasy world, but in a very undeveloped fantasy worlds, I think it's not a bad thing that it's gone. Now, I don't think America is going to return to the real world. I think it's going to remain in a fantasy world. It's foreign policy will continue to be a fantasy world. But let's hope it's a more developed fantasy world where there are places for different characters, where there are places for different views, for different world views, where America is not impatient with the idea that other countries can find different ways to live. You know, our problem with China should be, and I'm concerned about China today, I've written about it in the past, I think China could very well be on the way to a kind of imperialistic vortex, where perhaps not Chinese leaders don't want it, Chinese people doesn't want it, but sometimes things have a logic of their own and China could be sucked into that vortex. So we should be concerned with Chinese expansionism and we should be concerned about balancing Chinese power. But I don't think we should be concerned, as we were obsessed about in recent decades, with making China look and live like us. And so if America can find a new foreign policy where it's concerned with the disruption to the global system that excessive Chinese power can bring, but at the same time is not obsessed or even interested with the idea of converting China to the American way of life, that would be a better foreign policy. I do believe American foreign policy in the last 30 years was a disaster. And so I I remain hopeful that we can actually see an improvement. Now, I know some people think the last 30 years were exemplary. I have trouble understanding how you can argue that, but it, it does exist, that view. And if you hold that view, then you're pessimistic because what I think everyone agrees on is that things are changing rather dramatically and rather drastically.
0: Where does this leave Europe then? The way that you present it, it's almost like Europe has run out of ideas. But obviously, European states need to work out how to accommodate themselves to this new multipolar world. The European Union is obviously under a lot of pressure, particularly during the response to the coronavirus pandemic and maybe to a lesser extent dealing with the fallout from Brexit. Where do you see Europe going, I guess, within this picture that you've drawn for us?
2: Oh, well, this is is very important for Europe because... In a way, this partnership between Europe and America, America was the junior partner in the 19th century, even second half of the 20th century. Europe was clearly the junior partner, very dependent on America. And so if things are changing, we should be very interested and concerned about this. I think they're changing in different ways. First of all, I do hope that we can reconcile ourselves With the idea that America and Europe are very different places, very different cultures, perhaps different civilizations by now. They were part of the same civilization in the past. Uh, It's a striking notion that I introduce in the book. They can be quite quite healthy in our relations with America uh, because I think one problem in the past has been this attempt that Europeans have of trying to push America in, in a certain direction and vice versa that Americans were hoping that uh, Europe could become more like America in different ways. There was a sense, uh, going back to the Iraq War, that some parts of Europe were closer to America and that America should support those elements uh, of European society. All that was very negative and very poisonous again. But Europeans also uh, always uh, being uh, shocked uh, or pretending to be shocked at what happens in America as if it is should not happen because, in a way, we think it should be like us. I think if we get rid of these temptations, uh, relations could actually improve. And we have common endeavors. I think Chinese power is a problem both for Europe and and for America. And so once we got rid of these distractions, I think we could work better. I mean, it's obvious that the main reason Europe and the United States are not working together on on their China problem, let us call it that, is that is Donald Trump, which appears to Europeans as a particularly shocking figure. Now, I have trouble understanding why Donald Trump should be a shocking figure to Europeans, uh, whereas Xi Jinping is not a shocking figure to Europeans. And the reason must be that we expect America to be like us, and we don't understand what Donald Trump is doing there, and we don't expect China to be like us. So if one could actually accept American difference, it would be much easier to, to work with America on common projects. But finally, and this may actually turn out to be the most important thing, Europeans have to be ready for a world where they will be alone because these cultural, civilizational differences with America will create a distance. It was a very comfortable world in a way where we had the presence of American power, which was, of course, offered us protection, allowed us to invest on our economies and prosperity and social welfare system rather than on defense. It's been a pretty good deal for Europeans. American had overbearing power in Europe, but precisely because American society and European society were regarded as so similar, this never felt like an imperial presence. So we had the best of both worlds, someone taking care of our basic needs, especially in an emergency, but without being an imperial power. And so this deal is over. Uh, I think, uh, again, most people would agree on this, and life will become more difficult for Europe. So I think those are the, the essential elements. It's, it's, it's one of the main questions for Europe in the next 10 years, how to reconfigure its relations with the United States at the same time that it's reconfiguring its relations with China. So uh, it will be uh, interesting times, agitated times for Europe,
0: no doubt. One final question then. I mean, in this new reality, in this new international system where we have this divergence between the US and Europe and this alternative proposition posed by China, I just wondered, thinking on the level of individual nation states, what sort of characteristics do you think states are going to need to adapt or survive or even thrive in this system? They
2: will need flexibility they would need technology. They will need a certain ideological adaptability. Fundamentally, it will be a multipolar world. Uh, They will have to deal with centers of power that are competing uh, among themselves. Uh, They are very different. Some countries, of course, will be part of one of these centers of power. Others will have to try to balance between them. The UK, maybe one country there will be forced to balance between Europe and America, and and then China as well, have some sort of relationship with China. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I think ideological rigidity will will be a disadvantage. You do need technology as technology becomes even more than before a source of, of power. And finally, I think there are opportunities for middle-sized countries. I don't believe we'll see in the next few years how things develop. I don't believe we're entering a new Cold War where every state will be forced to align with one of the main blocs. I don't see evidence of that. I think that was very specific to the years after the Second World War, when many parts of the world were destroyed by the war. Others were just coming out of decolonization. So we had many weak states in the world and it was easy for the two main superpowers to expand their sphere of influence, essentially to half the world. I don't think that will happen with the United States and China. I see no evidence of that. I see no reason why European countries have to align with one or the other. And I see no reason why countries in Southeast Asia have to align with one or the other. What we should be ready for, I think, is actually for a world where power is going to be much more distributed. India will sooner or later become a major power. I think Russia, after Putin, has potential to become a major power. Putin has been an obstacle to that. Japan will, at some point, make a, a grand return to power politics. So it's in, increasingly a world where power is incredibly divided. And where you have to be flexible and look in all directions at the same time for opportunities and for balance. A balance is going to be the critical goal and the critical world in this new geopolitics.
0: I guess, in some way sobering thought. Is that something you're positive about? Is that a reason for optimism? Yes, because I actually think a multipolar world with
2: technology and a multipolar world with globalization, I don't think globalization is going away, is something new in human history. We had multipolar worlds, but usually they consisted of different empires that were pretty much their own worlds, self-isolated. So it's a new world full of, of opportunities, and it's a world where different cultures will have an opportunity to flourish. For all the glories of the last 300, 400 years of Western global power, and it was not a bad time for mankind at all, one problem was that uh, Western culture became so dominant simply because of its control of technology that other cultures really have no space to flourish. And I think there was something tragic about that. There was something tragic about what happened to Indian civilization over the last 400, 500 years. And Indians are the first to feel bitter and sorrow about this. So it will be a, a different world where, a more interesting world where, in a way, different cultural universes can coexist. The reason for this is, of course, that technology is now so widespread and that every major country feels confident it can control the sources of technological development. So the situation that persisted over over centuries, where essentially only the West was able to do that, is definitively over. And in a way, that means that different civilizations are brought together to the same level and they coexist at the same level. I think one very negative thing about the world of the last few centuries were that different parts of the world existed at different levels. In my first book, I, I'd say that they existed almost in different times. The West was more advanced, more developed. All these metaphors meant that the West was ahead. The rest of the world was supposed to take the same path, imitate previous trajectory of the West and kind of have a derivative, repetitive existence following just behind. So it was not the best way to organize uh, world politics. It was inevitable, but it was not the best way. If we're now entering a different different world and a different geopolitics, it is obvious that there are great opportunities here for human development, broadly understood, some risks, but huge opportunities.
0: Well, I think that that's been a fascinating and and somewhat nice to end on a positive note. Thank you, Bruno Marquez, very much for joining us. Bruno's book is History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America, and it's available now online. Bruno, thanks again. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: I'm here with Ian Black, who was the Guardian's Middle East editor. He's now a visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Centre LSE, and his latest book is Enemies and Neighbours, Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917 to 2017. Hello, Ian. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Hello. Hi.
1: (laughs) Hello. So we are here to discuss a much beloved ex-colleague of Chatham House, It was with quite a shock and sadness that we learnt that Rosemary Hollis died suddenly at her home in London last week. She led the Chatham House Middle East programme between 1995 and 2008 and did many other things. And you wrote a very charming and honest and fascinating obituary for her in the Guardian this weekend. How did you first meet her?
3: Well, I've known Rosie for a very long time, I mean, I think close to 30 years. Um, I actually don't remember when I first met her, but it was probably in the early 1990s. Rosie was already a renowned expert in international relations on the Middle East in particular. I was then the diplomatic editor of The Guardian, so writing about British foreign policy but international issues in general. And she was, as she remained throughout her life, a go-to person for expertise, analysis, insights, particularly on the Middle East, but also beyond that too. British foreign policy, European Union foreign policy, and international relations generally. But her her main focus was always on the Middle East. So I don't remember where we first met, but it was probably in a seminar or a Chatham House event or maybe a, a RUSI event, because that's where she worked before coming to, to Chatham House. And she was always very well sought after and delivered the goods, basically, on a, a range of I- issues. And she was in great demand by members of the media, and not just the British media, too, the international media, certainly London-based, but people who covered global issues. She was very sought after, and she was always on the ball.
1: I'm now asking you to summarise her entire career, because there's a brilliant column that our readers can read for that. Do you think there are any particular moments that truly stood out?
3: So I I think there were two periods that are really important. I mean, there are constant issues as well which she was expert on and talked about throughout her career. But I think there were two periods in particular. That was on the eve of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1991. That was when Saddam Hussein, in August 1990, invaded the neighboring Gulf country of Kuwait. That was a very, very important moment in modern Middle Eastern history. The second one was on the same theme. The U.S. led, with Britain, involved to the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003 in the wake of the 9-11 attacks on America. And, of course, it resulted in the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi dictator. I think her contribution then Uh, was especially important. So, for example, um, in 1990, she'd left Washington, where she'd been for the previous few years, to come back to London to work at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI for short. And she was in charge of the Middle East program there, as she was to later run it at Chatham House. So one of her most notable achievements there was the publication of an article which warned of the possibility of an Iraqi invasion of Kuwait a few months before it actually happened. Mm. So that was something that showed serious knowledge of a complicated situation. It remains a controversial issue, but broadly speaking, what happened was that the invasion of Kuwait was rebuffed by by a US-led coalition with uh, other forces involved as well, including British forces and Saudi Arabia and so on, even Syria, but they failed to dislodge uh, Saddam and that happened of course in 2003. And by the time she was working in Chatham House, Rosemary was organizing in the run-up to the US-led invasion, again supported by Britain. Rosie was organizing workshops with American officials and military and Chatham House says indeed on on its website that they they explored scenarios for the day after an invasion with warnings that were, that were conveyed to the British government, including then Prime Minister Tony Blair, that the fallout would destabilise Iraq and the region and beyond. So that was an important uh, issue as well. And of course, many will argue that its consequences are still with us to this day.
1: I've got two more questions for you, if that's okay. Was there anything that you sort of found out about her from researching or writing this obituary that you didn't know before that surprised you or, or was new information?
3: So I don't think I discovered anything that surprised me. But I think that Rosie's achievement was, in the big picture, was about bridging the gap between After all, she came from an academic background. You know, she spent years in archives and libraries and so on and so forth. But she always mattered to her, I think, to practically apply the lessons of the past and indeed the present, too. So she chose not to spend uh, her professional life in the academic world, but in the world of think tanks. And on the more practical side, too, And I think that the thing that most impressed me about Rosie, she was generally impressive, but the one specific thing that I think that she would want to see as her finest hour, if you like, was the Olive Tree program that she ran at City University when she left Chatham House, I think, in 2008. And the Olive Tree program was uh, no longer exists, a program to bring together Palestinians, and Israelis. Difficult thing to do at the best of times. Young people who would do a degree at city university, but they would also, there was a program that was designed to create a safe and shared space for them to talk about. Arguably, what is the world's most difficult conflict? Most of them would never have met had they been at home, whether in Gaza, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, and that was a, a very fine example of a practical application, if you like, of her extensive knowledge. And she teamed up, of course, with the poet you mentioned, Damien Gorman, to introduce her students to the results of the troubles in Northern Ireland to broaden their horizons and understanding. And in fact, I interviewed her once a few years ago. Actually, when the, when the program was just winding down and she was about to leave, and she said, if you can get your enemies to learn from each other, not to agree, that can be valuable. And I think that's a, a very practical lesson based on you know many years of experience and to do good in a difficult situation.
1: Yeah. And compromise, just because the perfect solution hasn't happened doesn't mean that compromise can't be a good thing. Final question. I mean, what did an evening with Rosemary look like? You know, what did she do to unwind, you
3: Well, you know, colleagues from from Chatham House speak very fondly of going to a nearby wine bar, (laughs) I think called Davies, actually. It was described as uh, subterranean. It was a wine bar in St James, but not just winding down over a glass or two. But uh, actually, having important discussions that were relevant to Chatham House, and they were often attended by visiting journalists and diplomats and so on, foreign politicians, and they they talk about that quite uh, nostalgically, as if it were a golden age under Rosie's inimitable command. Well, Ian,
1: thank you so much for coming on speaking to us about rosemary hollis we will link to your obituary below have a read it's uh, a bit william boyd i would say in its um, (laughs) shape of life so yeah thank you so much And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another set of hopefully very interesting interviews for you. If you have any feedback, please do get in touch. You can tweet us at House or send us a note through the website or an audio note for our Libsyn page. Please also share with your friends. Let them know if you like us and uh, please rate and subscribe.
0: We'll be back next week with two great new interviews. But just as we leave you now, we're just going to leave you with the words of Chatham House's Director and Chief Executive, Dr Robin Niblett, who has appeared on the podcast in the past. And these are his reflections on Rosemary Hollis. Rosemary's untimely passing robs the world of one of the most thoughtful and well-informed voices on the politics of the Middle East. Rosie's work was highly regarded across the region, whether by governments or their critics, as well as in the UK, US and Europe. I also know from many colleagues at the Institute how unremittingly supportive she was of them in their early careers. This alone would be a proud legacy for Rosemary, but it stands alongside the deep respect and recognition she gained for her knowledge of and passion for the peoples and politics of the Middle East.